Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. All of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, which is bigamateurism.com. And I have some stuff on a blog that I've been writing in for about two and a half years now. And the name of that blog is cagerredux.com. C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. Today is June 30th, 2021. It is about 7.30 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, and in less than 17 hours, we will transition into July 1st of 2021 that the NCAA has predicted will be the equivalent of the college sports apocalypse, and college sports as we knew them will come to an end. Why? Because on July 1st, 2021, six state name, image, and likeness laws will go into effect that will permit college athletes to receive compensation for their name, image, and likeness in free markets in the United States of America. And the NCAA has predicted that if that happens, we will see the fatal collapse of college sports. So I will be paying close attention as the hours pass today and we transition into July 1st to bear witness to the apocalypse and to report back to you. And for those NCAA true believers, the religious adherence to amateurism and the collegiate model and the student-athlete, my heart goes out to you. It really does. And I may say a little prayer for you at 1159 tonight just to honor the passage into a world where the NCAA has to abide by principles of freedom and justice in the United States of America. I know how hard that is for you. But I'll be thinking about you. And it may not be too late for you to pick up on eBay an old Cold War bomb shelter or a Y2K safe room. It may not be too late to protect yourself from the apocalypse. Really, this is just an incredible scenario as it's playing out. And I have so much to talk about. I'm not sure where to start. It's one of these, it's going to be one of these episodes where I could be jumping around a little bit more than usual, (laughs) but I want to start. And this really, I think is a significant uh, message change for the NCAA, but I want to start with a statement that was released by the NCAA on Monday, June 28th, by one of its faceless PR people. They've got, I don't know, seven, eight, nine publicity people who put out these omniscient press releases, these status Soviet-style press releases that just come from above. And this release is titled, D1 Council Recommends D1 Board, the NCAA Division I Board of Directors, adopt name, image, and likeness policy. And there's a subtitle that says, Policy Preserves Rules Against Pay-for-Play and Recruiting Inducements. And I'll just go ahead and go through this release because the way that this is constructed, the language that it uses, and the substance that it conveys is really, really important here because what the NCAA is doing now is stepping aside completely from its core functions and its core responsibilities and its core authorities and purposes that it has been tied to religiously 
since the 1950s. And when I finish going through this release, I want to talk about it historically because what the NCAA is doing right now by completely stepping aside on name, image, and likeness and abandoning its traditional roles that really define the institution, they are turning the clock back to the early 20th century and principles of home rule that basically put all of the responsibility for rulemaking, for governance, for institutional responsibility and control on the individual universities. And that has important implications at a number of different levels. But this is really a stunning change in direction. And the NCAA is going to say that this was driven in large part by the litigation scenario and the Supreme Court decision and its fear of besieging and frivolous litigation. I'm going to talk about that too, because that is another absolute smokescreen. And the NCAA's justifications about all these antitrust concerns have been grossly overblown. And their failure to act on nil is not because they're afraid they're going to get sued. They're already getting sued. And this house suit that I talked about in the last episode is a perfect example of that. And I'll get into that in this episode as well and tie it into what the NCAA is doing right now and how it is really dumping this issue in the laps of the institutions on very short notice. So in my episode on Mark Emmert and Al Haig, I went through that June 18th letter from Mark Emmert where he had his Al Haig moment and said, I'm in control here, and if the universities don't take care of getting ready for nil, I'm going to step in and issue edicts that are going to require you to do this, that, and the other thing. Uh, We haven't heard boo from Mark Emmert. He's in hiding. So is the NCAA Board of Governors. Where the hell are these people? And the media is just covering for the NCAA right now. They have to point out that this whole chaos leading up to July 1st is the result of NCAA incompetence and how they've mismanaged nil. Beyond that, they're not asking any questions. There's no curiosity there. And this just goes to show how dirty and corrupt and incestuous the entire college sports marketplace is. But as I go through this press release, I'm going to stop and explain the, the importance of what the NCAA is saying here. So uh, let's see, this was issued Monday at 3.25 p.m. And they mentioned that this whole issue about these guidelines I'm gonna describe here for name, image, and likeness, and they're guidelines, they're not rules, and that's important too, that they are gonna be approved by the Division I Board of Directors today, June 30th. So as I do this episode, I may have to come back and do an addendum because I'm going to be checking in on the NCAA website to see what the Division I Board of Directors does. I think they're going to adopt this guidance that's set forth in this press release. So the first paragraph of the press release, the Division I Council, and remember the Division I Council is the legislative body in the NCAA Division I governance process. You have the Board of Governors, which is the big association-wide group that is responsible for the big picture stuff. They are not elected by the membership or by the member institutions. They are self-appointing and they hire and fire Mark Emmert, who likewise is not elected by the membership and has no direct relationship with the membership or responsibility to the membership. Mark Emmert reports only to the Board of Governors. So one of the things that's interesting is that this doesn't come from the NCAA Board of Governors. This doesn't come from Mark Emmert. This comes from this omniscient voice hovering above the NCAA 
that places the responsibility for the next step on name, image, and likeness with the Division I Council, this very Division I Council that's had legislation prepared, draft legislation prepared, going back to September of 2020. And it's that very legislation that the NCAA pulled the plug on in January of 2021. But uh, this is just the, the fact that this statement comes out and it's running through these legislative bodies, the Division One Council and then the Division One Board of Directors. So you got the Board of Governors and you have the Division One Board of Directors and the, the Division One Council in that order hierarchically going down. And the council and the board, they are there's more transparency there in how those people wind up getting the seats that they get. And there's some connection to the membership there. And so anyway, this has been dumped in the lap of the Division One Council. And so this press release says the Division One Council voted to recommend the Division One Board of Directors adopt an interim policy that would suspend amateurism rules related to name, image, and likeness. The board meets Wednesday, and that is today, June 30th, 2021. So just in that first paragraph, the framing of the issues is really important here. So this is an interim policy waiting for what? Waiting for what? Well, they're waiting for Congress to come in and bail them out with a preemption provision that would nullify all these state laws. They're buying time. Again, this whole name, image, and likeness campaign going back to uh, May of 2019 has been nothing more than a lie to buy time to get protections from the federal government that, if granted, would allow them to do nothing on nil. Their action, their inaction, I, I would say more accurately, is proof of that. And there's absolutely no reason why they couldn't have acted on this Division I Council proposed name, image, and likeness policy almost a year ago. So this thing's been in existence for almost a year, and the NCAA has prohibited it from going through the legislative process. So the second paragraph, while opening nil activities to student-athletes, the policy, and it's a policy now, it's not a rule, okay? So that's important too, leaves in place the commitment to avoid pay-for-play, and improper inducements tied to choosing to attend a particular school. Those prohibitions would remain in, a, in effect. Now, so there you have this tension between what I think one of the NCAA's true motives is in this kind of shifting responsibility to the institutions. But they're talking about these new guidelines as a policy. It's not a rule, and they haven't gone through the process to enact any specific rules changes. And this process using the Division I Council and the Division I Board of Directors is not to put into place NCAA uh, rules changes through the legislative process. So they don't say that this is a rule, it's a policy, and then they want to leave in place the commitment to avoid. What does that mean? The commitment to avoid pay for play and improper inducements when the subtitle of this press release says policy preserves rules for pay for play and recruiting inducements. So they're suspending amateurism rules, but at the same time, they want to preserve rules against pay for play and recruiting inducements. It's nonsensical. It's absolutely nonsensical. Those two components of this press release and this guidance and this policy are in irreconcilable conflict. You cannot suspend amateurism rules relating to name, image, and likeness while demanding that you adhere to pay-for-play restrictions and recruiting inducement restrictions. Again, we're back to this Orwellian construction of the entire name, image, and likeness debate where you say, yes, you can have nil compensation, but only 
under the rules that prohibit compensation. And that's the, the thing that Condoleezza Rice talked about when she said using the collegiate model as the framework for name, image, and likeness makes absolutely no sense at all. And this is just a repeat of that. And again, I haven't read anything in the media that, that points out the absurdity of this press release and what the NCAA is trying to do here. So then it says those prohibitions would remain in effect. And again, so they're bouncing back and forth. Are we adhering to these amateurism-based rules or not, NCAA? What are we doing here? Are you suspending the amateurism rules or not? You can't have it both ways. You can't say you're suspending the amateurism rules and then say that the prohibitions against pay-for-play and recruiting inducements remain in effect. So in a third paragraph, if adopted by the board, the temporary action, they want to make clear here, this is temporary, would remain in place until, here we go, (laughs) the big reveal, until federal legislation or new NCAA rules are adopted. The NCAA is not adopting any new rules. Can we just take that out of the equation? The lie is over. The NCAA is not going to do anything voluntarily on name, image, and likeness. They're just in denial. So they are waiting for a federal legislation. I'm going to talk about that in a bit in this episode because they're not going away in the Senate. They're going to use the chaos from this July 1st deadline. And and when we move into the nil era, all you're going to hear from the NCAA, all you're going to hear from the spokespeople, in-system stakeholder beneficiary spokespeople. And I think you're going to start to hear this from college presidents. You're going to hear it from governing boards. You're going to hear it from athletics directors and head coaches and all these overpaid athletics administrators that this is calamity. This market's calamity. And we have to do something now, now, now. And I'll, I'll talk about that dynamic in a bit. But that, that's where I think this is headed. So the, the policy provides the following guidance. Again, this is guidance. They're not directing members to do anything, and that's important as well. So there are four components of the guidance. And remember, this guidance all floats underneath the NCAA's adherence to its rules against pay-for-play and against recruiting inducements. So bullet point one in the guidance College athletes can engage in nil activities that are consistent with the law of the state where the school is located. Oh, thank you, NCAA, for permitting these athletes to comply with a valid state law. In that same bullet, they say colleges and universities are responsible for determining whether those activities are consistent with state law. This is really important here because what the NCAA is saying in this bullet point is that they are not going to exercise their enforcement jurisdiction to come in and monitor whether athletes are complying with the state laws or whether the universities are complying with the state laws. They're saying, we're out of it. We're out of the infractions and enforcement and eligibility determinations on this nil thing. It's up to the colleges and the universities. That is huge. The second bullet point is that student athletes who attend a school in a state without a nil law can engage in this type of activity with, without violating NCAA rules related to name, image, and likeness. And this really reinforces that first bullet point. And the NCAA is basically saying, we're just abandoning enforcement, infractions, eligibility, jurisdiction over this issue. And then the third bullet, college athletes can use a professional services provider for nil activities. So what that means is that these athletes can hire agents and there's an entire cottage industry of 
companies that have sprung up in the last year or so that are devoted to helping athletes take advantage of their name, image, and likeness opportunities. And they're third parties. They're not connected to the universities. But you have this in entire industry, this budding industry coming into existence and growing and expanding. And that's going to be an important part of the marketplace and name, image, and likeness. But I don't know what the scope of services is going to be that those firms provide, but you're going to have relationships that are essentially agency relationships where these companies or people in them are acting as uh, true agents in the procurement of nil deals and perhaps interaction with the universities and getting all the disclosures done, all this stuff. But the NCAA is saying, you can do that now. It's okay. You can do that. And then the last one, the last bullet point says student athletes should report nil activities consistent with state law or school and conference requirements to their school. So this goes to the reporting requirements, all these draconian reporting requirements that are a huge part of a lot of these state laws and a lot of the proposals that have come out of Congress, particularly in the Senate. There are bills that, when you look at the length of them, half of them are devoted to draconian reporting and disclosure requirements that run through this filter of the bad actor theme that anybody who is in a position to potentially compete with revenue streams that the NCAA and the institutions and the conferences have for themselves is a bad actor. And that means athletes, that means agents, that means boosters, that means third-party contractors, anybody in the nil marketplace that could conceivably act in a way that threatens the NCAA Power Five institution financial interest is a bad actor. But the NCAA is not going to enforce the bad actor rules. That's going to have to be done at the state level for those states that have a state nil law or at the school and conference level where schools and conferences are implementing their own requirements related to nil because there will be no nil marketplace unless the schools take action. And the only reason that they're in this position now is because the NCAA and the national office and Mark Emmert have dumped their nil trash at the doorstep of the institutions. And they've said, we wash our hands of nil. It's now your problem. <laughs> That's exactly what's happening here. And then it says, uh, we're out of the bullet points. It says, with the nil interim policy, schools and conferences may choose to adopt their own policies. Well, of course, they have to. And because so much of this whole nil marketplace and all this panic that has been uh, built into this fear-mongering campaign that the NCAA and Power Five have, have engineered, it, it all relates to this competitive advantage, disadvantage thing. And there's going to be enormous pressure on institutions through the athletics departments and the ADs and the administrators and the head coaches, particularly in football and men's basketball, through alumni, through probably some governing boards, to do something on nil at the institutional level that ensures that institution remains competitive in the talent acquisition market with its peer institutions that they're competing with. And that's what this is all about. It's about avoiding losing a competitive advantage or trying to come up with some aggressive nil policy that may give them an additional competitive advantage. But all of this runs through that lens of how these market circumstances and the, this nil market influences the battle for talent acquisition. 
And again, this goes back to this fundamental problem with the way the business model is structured that because the universities can't compete for salary because of the NCAA's amateurism-based compensation limits, they compete in all these other ways. And the money that would be going into the labor force is going into coaches' pockets and AD's pockets and athletic administrators' pockets and into the building of facilities. All that is driven to one thing, and that is to provide a competitive advantage in the talent acquisition market. And now with this new nil market, that's going to be the driving force as well. It's not going to be about whether these institutions really care about the athletes getting nil compensation. This is a classic case of interest conversion and the institutional interests and the interests of the athlete have this transitory convergence where they are on the same page under the circumstances as this thing is played out. And the NCAA has taken itself out of the picture as the national enforcer of its uh, national compensation limits. It suspended those compensation limits and turned the details over to the member institutions. So then this press release ends with this paragraph. It says, on Wednesday, the board will review the council's recommendation and any additional information that comes to light. Governance committees in Divisions 2 and 3 are also expected to vote on the interim nil policy by Wednesday. What's interesting about that last paragraph is that it highlights the fact that this whole nil debate really only is relevant to Division 1 and within Division 1 to the Power 5 because that's where the money is. The NCAA doesn't give a damn about what happens in lower-level Division 1 or Divisions 2 or 3 because these nil policies really can't have any impact on the overall business model of big-time college sports because none of those products, any of the products below the Power 5 or any product in Division 2 or any product in Division 3 makes money. And they're not a threat to the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries in big amateurism. So they're just a footnote here at the end of the last sentence of this entire press release. So what is the consequence of this? And I think this really goes to the heart of where things stand right now in the NCAA's fundamental relationship to the member institutions and to the conferences. And th this is really a fundamental abdication of NCAA power and authority. So think about what they've said in that press release. And before I analyze this, I want to take us back to the episodes that I did during uh, Pay for Play and also The Prisoner's Dilemma. And those focus on what is it that the NCAA, as an independent authority and the NCAA national office and the NCAA governance structure and the NCAA president, what is it that they offer to the membership? And again, this is all driven to big time football. And that has been true really since the beginning of the modern era in big time college sports. And that goes back to the 1950s, because remember, these crucial things that happened in the 1950s, and I explained those in, in detail in episode 18, 
part two of pay for play. And I look at the period 1945 to 1956, which was another perfect storm era, probably as consequential as what's happening right now in terms of the structure of the business model. But that's when the NCAA, through Walter Byers, who was hired in 1951, gained credible enforcement jurisdiction. They gained exclusive control over the football market. And the NCAA capitulated to any rational conceptualization of amateurism with the adoption of the full athletic scholarship, which was outright pay for play. Those three things coming together have formed the core of the NCAA's purpose, its mission, and its relationship to the institutions. And all of those things right now have been taken off the table. So what is it right now that the NCAA is offering anyone in the system. So in my Prisoner's Dilemma episodes, this was after the Austin oral argument on March 31st, and that came from a quote from the NCAA's attorney, Seth Waxman, when he was talking about the tension, the inherent tension between the interests of the NCAA and the interests of the Power Five. And I talked at length about that and how the NCAA has been relevant primarily only to the Power Five. They're doing the Power Five's bidding. Everything else in the NCAA is just window dressing to cover that market reality and that financial connection and the maximum exploitation of football, men's basketball, to make as much money as possible in those markets. And that's the Miles Brand's collegiate model. But in this relationship between the Power Five conferences and the NCAA, the two most important features of that relationship are the NCAA's national cap, this overarching cap on the compensation of athletes, of revenue-producing athletes, because compensation and athletes only go together in the context of revenue-producing sports. And that is exclusively a, a feature of Power 5 football, Power 5 men's basketball. But the NCAA has placed this national cap on the entire college sports marketplace. It has been the sole enforcer of that overall cap. And those two things, the, the overarching cap and then the ability to enforce it, are the two things that have been the glue that have bound the Power Five and the NCAA. And the powerful football interests, remember, are completely free financially from the rest of the college sports marketplace. And the Power Five are operating as an entirely separate entity under the NCAA umbrella. And the reason they stay under the NCAA umbrella is because the NCAA has offered that overarching national cap on the cost of labor in the football and basketball marketplace. And the NCAA has the responsibility to enforce it. And because no football money goes to the NCAA, none of that money is used for NCAA administrative purposes, including its enforcement and infractions. All that comes from revenue from the CBS Turner March Madness contract. And so when I talk about this $1.1 billion black hole that goes into the NCAA national office, that's what I'm talking about. And a lot of that money is used to enforcing this overarching national compensation limit, this salary cap, this fixed price, this actually fixed wage agreement that suppresses the human capital in the college sports labor force. 
So if those two things are gone, if the NCAA is simply stepping aside on this overarching compensation limit, which it says it's doing, at least with respect to name, image, and likeness, in this press release on Monday, and if the NCAA at the same time is saying it's not going to exercise any of its enforcement jurisdiction, (laughs) then what is the NCAA offering? And the answer to that is nothing except more propaganda and a double down behind the scenes in their campaign in the Senate because that's the only option they have left, the only card they have to play. So when you look at this press release and you look at what the NCAA is saying here, what they're really doing is turning the clock back to this period between 1906 and 1945 where the NCAA had no overarching compensation limit that was enforceable. It had no enforcement and and infractions process. That didn't start until the 1950s when Walter Byers opened an investigation into this point-shaving scandal involving Kentucky and the City College of New York in the early 50s. That was the very first infractions and enforcement case. Prior to that, the NCAA was a toothless tiger. It was basically an advisory board of college representatives issuing suggestions and guidance. And that's exactly what the NCAA is doing in this press release. They have pressed the clock back to the early 20th century. And what they have done here is really articulated the home rule philosophy that existed in the early 20th century. And this press release... These bullet points, the the language that the NCAA use, this could have come out of the NCAA in 1920 or 1930. And they're saying to the member institutions, we don't have any jurisdiction here. We can't really enforce any of our rules. We like amateurism and we want you to, have to keep that in mind. And you want, we want you to be guided by these principles. But ultimately, you decide member institutions. You defi- decide universities. You decide conferences. So this is really a very interesting time machine. This press release, this June 28th press release, is the NCAA version of time travel back to the early 20th century, the first half of the 20th century. This is home rule. And I titled this episode, The NCAA's Rapidly Shrinking Relevance. And the reason for that is that when you look at this press release, you look at what the Division I Council has proposed and what the Division I Board of Directors is likely to affirm, this is home rule, at least temporary home rule. And given the content of this press release and what's likely to come out from the Division I Board of Directors, the NCAA has no role. It has no responsibility. It has no authority. And I believe in turn, it has no credibility. So this is a really interesting time for the NCAA because as they are working on their interim plan, their temporary plan, and that is going to have nothing to do with NCAA voluntary rules making. Again, that's out the window. That, if you buy that, then you believe in the tooth fairy. This is about doubling down in the Senate to get the best deal that they can get under the circumstances. And I'm going to talk about that in uh, the next episodes because I think that's where this is headed in the short run. But as of today, the NCAA has no purpose. 
It has absolutely no purpose to the interests that give life to the NCAA and the NCAA national office and the NCAA bureaucracy and all these executives that are getting these seven-figure salaries. So the NCAA has been emasculated by the Austin ruling, by what's happening in this House litigation, and in the court of public opinion, they have no cards to play. And I think that that explains the silence from Mark Emmert and from the uh, Board of Governors. And on top of those fundamental structural uh, changes in this reversion back to home rule, you have to look at the NCAA's authority and credibility now through the lens of what it was promising that it would deliver back at the beginning of this fraudulent nil compensation campaign in 2019. And behind the scenes, they were telling all the power brokers and the Power Five conferences and the Power Five conference presidents and chancellors that they had a campaign in place, a dual strategy, both in Congress and in the federal judiciary, to completely end the athletes' rights movement and to neutralize and eliminate any external regulatory threat, whether it came from the United States Congress, whether it came from state legislatures, or whether it came from federal courts. And the key components to their uh, quest for the Iron Throne were built around eliminating those three threats. So you have the NCAA swagging in to these conversations with stakeholders, and they've hired the best lawyers, the best lobbyists, the best public relations people that money can buy to make this happen. And so Emmert's rolling along, telling all the institutional stakeholder beneficiaries what they want to hear. And so there is some built-in expectation there that on the backside of this faux-nil compensation campaign, the NCAA and the financial interests of the institutional stakeholders were going to be completely protected. And the NCAA's campaign in Congress, particularly in the Senate, just blew up in its face because of mismanagement. And I've talked about that at length in prior episodes. Their campaign to eliminate state legislatures was really part of that congressional campaign because they wanted absolute preemption of all state laws, not just state name, image, and likeness laws, but any laws that conflicted with NCAA compensation limits. And then they wanted this provision that NCAA athletes could not be deemed employees of their universities. And that's blown up in their face because all these bills in Congress have that restriction, except for the Athletes' Bill of Rights. And the NCAA's loyalists in Congress, you've got uh, Gonzalez and his people over in the House, and then you've got a holy host of Republican uh, senators who have been carrying the NCAA's water. And the net result of all of that, all those promises, all that behind-the-scenes arm-twisting, have amounted to nothing but a big, epic fail. And all that is under Mark Emmert's leadership, and he owns it. So what's left now? What does the NCAA have left now to offer the membership? And I think the answer is absolutely nothing. They have nothing to offer. And I don't think they're going to be able to go back to this enforcement and infractions mentality and nickel and diming athletes and institutions and targeting revenue-producing athletes, which means they're targeting black revenue-producing athletes over accepting a T-shirt from a booster and saying that that is destroying the integrity of college sports. 
the NCAA is simply not going to be able to get away with that anymore. So in addition to their bite being taken away by Emmert's mismanagement, their bark is gone too. And there's nothing in their toolkit now to reach back to the pre-Austin status quo or the pre-state nil law status quo. It's just not going to happen. And this press release in which the NCAA explicitly abandons these two bigger principles that really define their purpose, the overarching compensation limit on the cost of labor and their ability to enforce that compensation limit. Those have less credibility too. So I think this is the beginning of the end of the NCAA as we know it. But we have to pay attention to what's happening in uh, Congress. And I still think, in large part because of Maria Cantwell's monomaniacal focus on bipartisanship for bipartisanship's sake, the athletes aren't out of the woods yet on the potential market limitations that might come from Congress. And you also have these state laws being built in large part around NCAA amateurism principles, and they are designed to protect institutional interests before any consideration of meaningful name, image, and likeness compensation is on the table for these athletes. So this environment is is really intriguing, but we are a long, long way from this fundamental transition from an amateurism-based model into a uh, more American free market model. That, That hasn't happened yet. But I think that the NCAA, as the... Uh, market actor, the main market actor to keep this whole amateurism fraud together. I think that's over. And we have to remember too, and and this is really important in, in how this may play out in Congress. Prior to Austin, prior to the state laws going into effect, prior to the NCAA's huge credibility hit because of the unanimity of the Austin decision in the Supreme Court, You had all these institutional stakeholders making the case that the NCAA and only the NCAA should be responsible for the regulation of college sports and that they should sit in the Iron Throne. And that was the explicit message and the marching orders with these Republican senators and these bills that were nothing more than disguised ways to give the NCAA the sole possession of the Iron Throne of college sports regulation. They can't make that argument anymore. Because the NCAA has proven that they are incapable of competently managing college sports. And the NCAA national office is a cesspool of incompetence and corruption. And in-system stakeholders refuse to call that out, honestly. And the media refuses to call that out, honestly. But this all runs through NCAA national office arrogance, greed, and corruption. That's the long and short of it. And I just don't see the NCAA being able now to look United States senators in the eye and say, we need to be in charge. We're the experts here. You got to trust us, trust us, trust us. That's what they've been saying throughout this whole nil debate. Trust us, trust us. We're going to do the right thing. And we care about these athletes and on and on. No, they have been dragged kicking and screaming through this nil debate, they haven't changed a single word of a single NCAA rule that would loosen restrictions on name, image, and likeness compensation. 
and they have been on a scorched earth campaign in the in federal courts and in Congress to make sure that these athletes don't get a dime of name, image, and likeness compensation. That's the truth. That's where we sit right now. Nothing has changed on name, image, and likeness. And the NCAA still hasn't changed a rule. This policy, this guidance, this press release, these generalized statements of policy, those aren't rules changes. Those are suggestions. So the NCAA has nothing here. And it's going to be interesting as this nascent nil market shapes up and free market forces are going to dictate in many ways how this market plays out. And now instead of having one market actor dictating the terms of the market or this oligarchy of the five power conferences uh, acting to define the market, you have 350 plus schools in NCAA Division One participating in the market on equal terms. And so I think that one of the ironies of this bizarre set of circumstances and the way that everything has played out and the way that the NCAA's campaign in the Senate and federal courts just crashed and burned, you have the opportunity for free market forces to reveal themselves and to really have a dynamic market at the rulemaking level, at the policymaking level, among all the NCAA Division I member institutions. And that's the way it ought to be. That, that's the American way. And these monopolist actors and these monopolistic wage suppressors, they're on the sidelines now. And so it's going to be really interesting to see what this market shapes up to be. And you have to remember that back after Board of Regents in 1984, because remember, the NCAA had this monopoly on televised football from 1951 to 1981. They controlled the output of football games. They determined who played in these TV packages, how often they played, when they played, and how the money was divided. Because all that football money went to the NCAA, not to the big-time powerful football conferences. So you had the NCAA in complete control of the marketplace, And the marketplace was based on these really powerful suppressing forces of the market. And after Board of Regents, when those restrictions were removed, there was chaos in the marketplace. And you had a glut of TV programming and the laws of supply and demand, which had been taken out of the marketplace completely during the NCAA's monopoly over televised football, all of a sudden were in play. And the uh, CFA, this organization that sued the NCAA, these powerful football interests, they were doing their own TV packages. And in the short term, after Board of Regents, after these schools had their financial freedom and they were doing their own deals, they actually made less money in their contracts through the CFA than they would have made through the NCAA monopolistic industry-suppressing business model. And so there was some short-term, like, did we do the right thing here? But ultimately, the, the free market worked its magic. It worked through those issues. It determined what the marketplace ought to look like. And that was an evolution that really took 30 years. And it went through various iterations, uh, all driven by powerful football through the Bowl Alliance and the, the BCS and then into the college football playoff and the aggregation of power and conference realignment and the formation of the Power Five. That took decades to work itself out. The, the market was so dysfunctional 
because of its artificially suppressed ability to let free market forces operate, that when you took the lid off of that pressure cooker, there was disorganization, confusion, and chaos. And that's what happens when you are moving from dysfunctional markets into free markets. And the same thing will happen, I think, in this nil marketplace or in any marketplace that is built more around free market principles than NCAA compensation limits and wage fixing agreements on the cost of labor. So it's not going to happen overnight. There's going to be chaos. There's going to be calamity. There's going to be all kinds of activity in the cauldron of free competition. And you can bet your last dollar that the NCAA and Power Five and all the people benefiting from the status quo are going to use this short-term confusion and disorganization as a justification for running to Congress and saying you have to fix this immediately because college sports as we know it is coming to an end. None of the stakeholder beneficiaries were saying that in the post-Board of Regents scenario because they wanted to have control of their destiny in the free markets in America. And those same people want to deny these athletes that same opportunity. And I think that if Congress, and again, this is going to come down to what happens in the Senate, but if the Senate can resist the preemption component that the Senate Republicans want so desperately and NCAA wants so desperately right now, and give this market time, it could be really interesting. We'll just see what happens. We'll see how the free market sorts all of of these issues out. And that's the way it's supposed to work in America. (laughs) And then we can talk about some reasonable ways to structure the market in college athletics. The model already exists. It exists in the professional sports arena and how you accommodate all the conflicting interests. And sure, the universities have interests that they need to protect, but those weren't being protected at the institutional level. They were being protected at the national level with these, this broad overarching compensation limit that really didn't permit the institutions to think about these issues independently. So another thing that's important in the way that the NCAA and Mark Emmert and the governance system, such as it is, has dumped their trash on the institutions, and that is that the institutions now, for the first time ever, have the incentive to really look at these issues independently instead of just waiting for some edict from the NCAA national office or some governing board. And I believe because of the resources that these institutions have, particularly the Power Five institutions that have just a vast array of brilliant people with expertise that they can bring to this issue that could result in ways of thinking about the business model and name, image, and likeness that nobody's even considered because they've just been kind of waiting for the NCAA or the conferences to do something. But thinking about it from a business standpoint, you have major research institutions that have law school buildings full of brilliant legal minds, business schools full of brilliant business minds, and then a whole array of expertise around those two central resources that really, I think, could provide some interesting thoughts on how this whole name, image, and Uh, likeness market ought to operate, but more importantly, how the whole business model of big-time college sports might operate. So I don't think the NCAA was thinking about that when they dumped their trash on the institutions, 
But that could be a, a really good productive byproduct. Let's see what happens. Let's see what happens in these discussions. And there was a time when I thought that, and I actually considered trying to reach out to some rich people who think that NCAA is just a bunch of BS, to put together a contest with a $20 million prize and pick some Power Five institutions and challenge the law and business uh, schools and faculty in collaboration with students to come up with an alternative business model that's built around free market principles rather than NCAA amateurism-based compensation limits. What would they come up with? You know, let's see what happens. Now that's gonna have to happen. And they don't need a $20 million prize. They have no choice. And it's gonna be really interesting to see what some of these policies look like running through the lens of the really amazing resources available at these member institutions. So and it'll be a dynamic discussion. And I think it's really going to be, has potential to be fun, but the NCAA doesn't want this party to last very long. They say temporary, they say interim, because they want to get in front of the United States Senate to get relief immediately. Because the longer these free market forces play out, and the more that the member institutions actually roll up their sleeves and understand the business model, and understand what what the possibilities may be, the more power the NCAA loses and the less credibility that they have. And they're coming into this phase of their relationship to the stakeholders with very little power and very little credibility. So I want to address something else while we're talking about the NCAA's strategy here. If they have one, who knows really what's going on behind closed doors here. But one of the talking points that they've put out in defense of their inaction on name, image, and likeness is that if they implement these proposed nil rules changes that will loosen the existing outright prohibition on name, image, and likeness compensation, then that's going to expose them to additional antitrust liability. And that's an interesting argument because basically what they're saying is if they adopt this policy that provides more flexibility, that reduces the impact of amateurism-based compensation limits, that allows these athletes to make some money while preserving the NCAA's commitment to amateurism, then there's just going to be a, a flood of lawsuits. And that just doesn't make any sense to me. How is having a less restrictive business model in terms of anti-competitive business practices going to put you at greater risk of being sued? And particularly after this House decision where the rulings in that case and Judge Wilkins' opinion denying the NCAA's motion to dismiss said, look, we know that no rules changes have occurred, but she structured the analysis in a way where it doesn't matter. It's an entirely different case. And the other thing is after this Austin ruling, the rule of reason analysis applies. And so if the NCAA were to pass this legislation that's been sitting around in the Division I Council and athletes have some nominal nil compensation opportunities that they can promote and they get sued, the NCAA still has the opportunity to defend those competition uh, limits and those compensation limits under the rule of reason analysis. And there's nothing to say that they wouldn't prevail on that. So it seems to me the more permissive they are, the more likely they may be to prevail in a rule of reason analysis that gives some credence to their pro-competitive justification of amateurism. It just doesn't make any sense. 
Just like so many aspects of the NCAA's justification for their inaction make no sense. And they're talking about all these antitrust concerns. And this harkens back to January of 2021 when Emmert trotted out this conflict with the Trump Justice Department. And there were all these antitrust concerns about the null proposal, the NCAA proposal. There was no evidence of that. We don't know what those concerns are. And yeah, to the extent that any rules changes on nil incorporate NCAA compensation limits that have existed absolutely with respect to the nil market, then sure, is there exposure? Yeah, but no more exposure than existed before under a more restrictive compensation limit. It just doesn't make any sense. And particularly in light of this House ruling, the, the Ninth Circuit said this is a completely different analysis now. So the NCAA is going to get sued no matter what. And they should be sued no matter what. And as I said in the, uh, the last episode, or maybe it was the episode before that, that even if the NCAA gets all these draconian protections and immunities and they are operating from a position of the iron throne of college sports regulation, there's going to be all kinds of litigation over the scope of those federal immunities and protections. Litigation may increase. It may not decrease. And the same is true with these state name, image, and likeness laws. So there's going to be litigation over those because they are incorporating NCAA compensation limits. Theoretically, the individual schools now that are going to have to develop their own regulations to the extent they explicitly incorporate and enforce amateurism-based compensation limits, they may have some liability. It's more diffuse because you don't have the market control issue, but you may have schools kind of getting together and putting policies together that are pretty similar, and then you may have some antitrust concerns. Who knows? But there is no scenario here. Because the U.S. Supreme Court has come out and said that these practices are indefensible, they're un-American, you can't defend them under antitrust laws, to the extent those principles are brought into any legislation, rulemaking, or any decision by any market participant, whether it's the NCAA, the Power Five conferences, or the individual institutions, you have the potential for litigation. And that is okay, because your compensation limits are indefensible. And instead of coming to that acknowledgement and looking at this as a civil rights issue and the NCAA is a serial, chronic violator of federal antitrust laws, these in-system stakeholders are so afraid of what the free market might look like that they are clinging to these restrictions, however they are characterized, however they are presented, however they are framed. And yeah, so there'll be litigation. But that argument in and of itself, that if the NCAA eases restrictions at the national level on name, image, and likeness, that there's going to be a flood of litigation, simply doesn't make any sense. And then I want to make two more points before I close this out. One goes back to this notion that the NCAA's press release kind of presses rewind back to the early 20th century. And remember, before the NCAA acquired meaningful enforcement jurisdiction, and there was an agreement on fixing the price of labor at the cost of the athletic scholarship, there was rampant violation of amateurism principles. So the NCAA was just this toothless tiger, but they had all these uh, fluffy principles on amateurism that really go back to the founding. And then there were amendments in, I think, 1916 and 1922 that were designed to try to prevent the craziness in the market as it was perceived at the time in all these breaches of amateurism. So really all these devices that I talked about in the first pay-for-play episode, when I talked about that period, 1906 to 1945, through the lens of the 1929 Carnegie Report, were really free market forces that were thumbing their nose at amateurism. 
And I think that when you look at how the U.S. Supreme Court framed the history of college sports, they were emphasizing that period to make the case that amateurism is a fraud. And when I talk about that Supreme Court opinion, one of the things I'm going to look at is how the U.S. Supreme Court, in a very subtle but very uh, smart and I think unmistakable way, framed the history in a way that makes it difficult for the NCAA to rely on the revered tradition of amateurism and the sacred principle of amateurism because for the first 40 years of the NCAA's existence, those principles were honored primarily in their breach. And that is the truth of amateurism. The same thing is happening now in different ways. Yet the NCAA has clung to that life raft. And I think this U.S. Supreme Court was saying, this is bullshit. This is just absolute bullshit. And having just said that, I'm going to have to go in and check some box that says there's adult content here. But God, it felt good to say that. And then the other thing that I want to talk about is where this is headed now in the Senate. You know, I'd spent a lot of discussion on that June 9th hearing just a few weeks ago where the NCAA was trying so hard to line up an emergency preemption bill before July 1st. And then the June 17th hearing that the Republican senators boycotted while black athletes uh, told their stories to the Senate. I expressed concerns about where Maria Cantwell is on all this. It's clear to me that NCAA is going to do everything in its power to spin what happens in the next weeks, coming weeks and months, into absolute chaos and calamity that's going to necessitate congressional action. And there, there were some comments both from Cantwell and, interestingly, from Richard Blumenthal that, yeah, we need to do something. And that has some problems. And I still think there is a really important and perhaps unbridgeable gap between where the Roger Wickers and Roger Morans and the Ted Cruz's are on this versus where Blumenthal and Booker are on this. But one of the central components of all of these Senate bills, and I've discussed this as well in prior episodes, is some independent commission that uh, makes it appear as if the decisions about name, image, and likeness or about any other athlete issues in college sports are not going to be made by the NCAA. But remember, the NCAA's initial purpose in this whole Iron Throne was to have its authority preserved and unchallengeable. So these bills that came through the Republican senators disguised the NCAA's involvement are going to be really important, I think, in discussions in the Senate, because this goes to this fundamental issue. And I talked about this in the very first episode when I was defining the perfect storm that has brought us to this very point. And that is, it's not necessarily a debate about how much athletes get paid or what form that payment takes. The issue here is about who gets to decide. And that's going to be a fundamental component of the next step in Congress, if there's any way to put together a bipartisan bill. And there's going to need to be a third party, I think, some kind of entity that has responsibility to enforce whatever the federal law requires or permits. And we have these NCAA-friendly entities that are really disguises for NCAA control of college sports regulation. But then under the Booker Blumenthal bill, you have a third-party entity that has absolutely zero NCAA involvement and is really focused on athletes' interests. So what is that going to look like? And that is so, so important. So 
I had gotten off track a little bit because all the stuff that was happening, the current events in the, in the nil debate. But I was leading up to a discussion of Jerry Moran's bill that he offered in February of 2021 that I believe Maria Cantwell was using as a template to try to bring together some kind of bipartisan solution on these athletes' rights issues and name, image, and likeness. And that Moran bill is bad, bad news. And it's important to call it out, break it down, and explain why it is so bad and why Maria Cantwell or any other centrist Democrat who really doesn't understand the business of big-time college sports shouldn't be sucked in by the way that that bill was packaged and promoted and then described in the media. Because... Is not the athlete's friends. And as I've said in prior episodes, among all these bills, the Rubio bill, the Wicker bill, the NCAA proposed bill, and the Power Five bill, this Moran bill is the worst of them and has some features that are unique to these other bills that provide the NCAA potentially and the Commerce Committee basically an entire fiefdom over college sports. And in that fiefdom, the NCAA has subpoena power, and they can compel testimony to enforce their compensation limits and to pursue all these bad actors. It's just unconscionable, this bill is. So I'm going to try to get in an episode here, always trying to be nimble because you never know what the next story is going to bring. But I really want to emphasize what these Republican-sponsored bills actually do what they look like, what their true motives are, and what the result would be if moderate Democrats buy into building a quote-unquote bipartisan piece of legislation around those Republican bills. And we'll see. But I have had my eye on Cantwell. She makes me nervous and some of the things that she said. And I talked about that some in these episodes on these June hearings, and you can check those out if you want. And I'll be talking about it some more, but that's a big issue right now. And the, the other thing, I guess, is the NCAA, in Mark Emmert's uh, statement, after the Austin decision came out on June 21st, they tried to portray that as if the uh, Supreme Court was saying, oh, yeah, you know, we may, may think your business model is okay, but we're not going to be the ones to give you antitrust immunity. You have just have to go across the street to Congress and get it there, and then everything's okay. That's not what happened. That's not what, they, that's not what the Supreme Court said. That's, that's not what they in, intended. Yes, technically— The NCAA can always go to Congress, and yes, the Supreme Court did say that's a better forum, but that's purely theoretical, and the way that this name, image, and likeness debate has played out in reality in the United States Congress is not athlete-friendly. At least it hasn't been thus far. And so, again, I think that the unanimity of that Supreme Court decision really changes the debate in Congress because the NCAA can't come in and say, oh, yeah, the Supreme Court really is on our side here. And you have to look at what Justice X, Y, or Z said. Well, there there is no Justice X, Y, or Z. This was a unanimous opinion that rejected every argument the NCAA made to challenge the Austin ruling and every argument they made to support their entitlement to absolute antitrust immunity. The decision was a train wreck for the NCAA. So they can't go into Congress with any credibility now and say, yeah, the Supreme Court was on our side here. They really think that we should get this antitrust immunity from Congress. No, that's not what happened. All right. So As I wrap this up, I'll be thinking about all you true believers out there. Again, I'm going to say that prayer at 1159 
And we'll we'll just see. I'm I'm going to bear witness to what happens at midnight, and I will report back. All right. Thanks for joining me. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you, and I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Thank you.